Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, a senior policy fellow at ECFR, standing in for a few weeks for our regular host, Mark Leonard. And in today's podcast, we're looking at what many people see as the most important long-term question in global politics, the US-China relationship. Today in Washington, China's vice premier will start two days of talks with US administration officials. The talks are seen as crucial if there's to be a breakthrough before a big new wave of US tariffs on Chinese exports that are due to come into effect at the beginning of March. Can we expect the two sides to reach a deal? What do they both want from the relationship? And are these goals compatible? And where does Europe fit into the picture? To discuss these questions, I'm delighted to welcome two guests who are joining this podcast for the first time. Janke Oertel, a fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund, joining from Berlin, and here in London, Sebastian Malaby, a senior fellow for international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. So, Janke, if I can come to you first, um, how do you think China is uh, approaching these two days of talks? Are they optimistic for the chances of a breakthrough? I think optimism is long gone. Uh, so what is at stake at the moment is to maybe extend the deadline of conversations so that this whole lingering March 1st deadline that has been introduced by the 90-day deadline that was introduced in the G20 conversation, um, uh, that that can be overcome um, because the structural reforms that are asked by the US side cannot be taken care of within 90 days. So there has to be a face-saving solution that can now be presented um, in that is domestically sellable for the Chinese government, but that also fulfills some of the requirements that the U.S. side has. What the Chinese side definitely doesn't want is to extend the trade war further and to allow for further tariffs to be introduced, which do put a strain on the Chinese economy. And Sebastian, from the U.S. side, if, if the Chinese are interested in at least kind of kicking the can down the road in that way, would the U.S. be likely to play along? You know, I think you have to start with the political interests of President Trump, which are, you know, being seen to be tough on China is frankly good politics for him. So an argument that kind of gets hot, uh, then is contained a bit in order for the stock market not to get too anxious, uh, but then gets hot again because it serves him politically. That kind of stop-go um uh, pattern is probably in Trump's political interests. And, you know, we've seen with the fight over the funding for the border wall on the Mexican border, that Trump is willing to really push things quite a long way, uh, cause quite a lot of damage. So we had a government shutdown that was very protracted, uh, which just ended. But when it ended, it wasn't permanently ended. There was this statement that, hey, in three weeks, I might start again. So I don't think you're going to see clarity. Anything that Trump does kind of keeps his options open, um, threatens to, you know, unleash the Jekyll, uh, I mean, go from Jekyll to Hyde. Um, and so I, I think everybody will be left guessing um, going forward. I wouldn't exclude that, you know, China would get what it wants in terms of a, a period of uh, extended detente. But I, I think we'll always be worrying that, um, tough stuff will resume. And of course, uh, as I'm sure we're going to get to, um, we have a kind of uh, split screen um, image right now, because on the one hand, 
you've got these talks that you began by referencing, which, you know, potentially could be constructive. On the other hand, you've got an extremely um, tough situation on the Huawei um, question with these um, indictments being un unveiled in the last couple of days and the threat of trying to extradite um, a very senior Chinese uh, you know, business figure to the US to face criminal charges. So <laughs> this is, you know, on the one hand, a moment of extreme confrontation. On the other hand, a moment of trade negotiation. And I think it's that, frankly, messy ambiguity that we're going to be living with for some time. Right. And that the fact that these are happening at the same moment is partly, I think, just to do with the quirks of when the um, Canada deadline is as far as how long they can continue to hold this official. But Yanka, do you, from the Chinese perspective, is this, uh, you know, how much of a complicating factor is this? This is a massively complicating factor because Huawei is a, is a uh, Chinese champion. It's the embodiment of what China 2.0 basically is what the new China, the digital China, the technologically innovative China, the leading China is. Huawei is a competitive uh, company that is um, bidding for 5G technology all over the world that is going to, that is already embedded in most of the markets in the US, in Europe, all over the place. So targeting Huawei is targeting the core of what China also wants to be, the kind of country China wants to be. And that these processes are taking place at the same time is a bit of an irony also of the, um, of the system that the US is. It means there is a machinery behind this. And when the machinery is in full, full force, then it's hard to stop it. So the Department of Justice that that has um, reinforced the the charges against Huawei now um, has um, this has this has been going on for a long time, and they of course um, it's not easy to stop them from their investigation. So these uh, the charges that have now been reinforced have been um, under um, underscored with a lot of. Uh, detail and with a lot of um, examples where Huawei has been uh, allegedly not um, conform conforming with international law or with US law. Um, this is quite a significant charge that is being brought to the table. And I was a bit surprised to see that that Yoha uh, was still traveling um, to the United States because this does, for me, underline how important these negotiations are and how bad the Chinese economy is struck. Because otherwise, one could have also said one could delay those conversations because this uh, Huawei case is something that is um, unacceptable for the Chinese side. This, in a way, this brings me on to what seems to be one of the bigger underlying questions here, you know, which is precisely what does the U.S. want out of out of these talks, out of the larger negotiation with China? I mean, are there um, complaints to do with kind of relatively contained trade issues to do with? The familiar issues of forced technology transfers or intellectual property protection, or, you know, or is there, as some US officials have sometimes indicated, you know, a much more fundamental question that they really want China to kind of fundamentally change its whole economic model to do with state sponsorship or state ownership of major enterprises? Um, you know, and, and is there under, behind this an attempt to as some Chinese might say, to block China's rise to, to economic parity, particularly in these new technology areas. Sebastian, can you give us any insight on, you know, how the, the administration sees this or, you know, does it maybe have a, a kind of a split view on it? Well, actually, I think it's, um, first of all, important to realize that 
China doesn't have a Trump problem, it has an American problem, uh, because this is a bipartisan consensus in the US that it's time to get tougher on China. Um, you know, if I were to predict the position of the Democratic nominee, whoever that turns out to be in the next election, I would say it would be as tough on China as, as Trump is being. Um, and certainly there's no evidence um, from, you know, the Democrats who have taken over the House that they oppose uh, getting tough on China. Um, historically, it's often been actually the Democrats who were tougher than the Republicans because they were more willing to listen to uh, trade union concerns about uh, economic competition. So, and I think there's a bipartisan consensus also on kind of things that touch to U.S. security. Um, so I, I think that's the first point. Second point is it's not, nor is it simply an American problem because concerns about China extend to, um, you know, U.S. allies. Uh, it's not just that the U.S. is pressuring Poland, for example, to not buy equipment from Huawei. Um, you know, I think the, the, the five eyes, when they met last year, the, the, the five security um, allies agreed that opposing the um, implanting of Huawei technology and 5G networks should be something they should all support and work towards. You know, British intelligence um, is apparently as concerned with what it means for uh, Huawei equipment to be implanted in 5G networks as the US is. Um, right. The, the five eyes, just for those who don't know, it's it's the, the United States, the UK, Canada, Australia and New Zealand. Right? Yeah. And, and, and the Australians, for example, uh, has banned Huawei and ZTE, the other uh, leading um, tech, telecom tech firm in China, from supplying 5G equipment. You know, BT Group in Britain has said it will rip out Huawei equipment from part of its network. Vodafone in Britain has put a freezer on buying from China. Um you know, and, and, and so it goes on. So I think it is, you know, important to see that this isn't just a Trump thing. This is, first of all, bipartisan within the US. And secondly, it's actually a, a concern shared by Western allies. And I think that consensus of concern is particularly strong on things touching national security. It's this question that, you know, we, we, the world is building uh, the next generation uh, of internet technology, that internet is going to control everything from how your refrigerator works to how big power systems are switched on and off and controlled and maintained. Um, if uh, a uh, foreign power has access to all those networks and can hack them, control them, spy on them, um, that is an existential security risk as well as a uh, commercial issue. And it's on the security side that I think, frankly, um, you know, this is something that China is going to have to recognize is that, you know, so long as its um, values are perceived to be neither in sync with the West nor getting towards sync with the West. And it's that direction of travel that's very important. Uh, it simply isn't very easy to see how you de-escalate this. So you could imagine de-escalation on um, stuff which is purely commercial, stuff which is about the economy, because in the economy you have international win-wins. But in terms of security, it's more of a zero-sum um, competition. And, um, you know, I think it, it gets very interesting, actually, from a sort of 
American or indeed broadly Western liberal perspective, if you take the view that, you know, protecting the 5G network um, from foreign um, infiltration is a security matter, the implication is that Huawei and other similar Chinese companies should be kept out indefinitely, which means that Huawei should not be allowed to bid on all kinds of commercial contracts, which means, you know, that, you know, Ericsson and companies like that in the West, which compete, need to become national champions and sustained. It's a very anti-liberal, in economic terms, a very anti-liberal position to which one is driven. Um, but that is the logic uh, of the security flowing from the security concerns. Maybe to add from the from the German perspective on this one, because Germany is one of the countries that is still undecided um, about uh, the future of Huawei in its in its networks, um, and the big five G bids are out. Um, while the tendency is towards also excluding Huawei from this, um, there is a big argument here about exactly what Sebastian has been portraying: um, is the are the limitations to free trade that this would um, impose. Um, worth the price that is to be paid in terms of national security. While there's a strong element here in the, in the German community saying, well, we don't want to close ourselves off from the market and we don't want to close, um, and, and want to, don't want to have proprietary technologies that, that then would not be integratable in the international sphere, sphere. Um, the other, the other side is also that the Germans, uh, are not included in the, in the five eyes and they have repeatedly asked for additional proof that there is backdoors, anything included. Um, what is overlooked in that sense is that strategic intent is usually not a hardware component. So it's really hard to find uh, in the technology that you can see and that you can look at what exactly is the, uh, actually a trust problem that Sebastian has, has defined quite well there, I think. And uh, this is where the German side is still in debate and trying to find and come to a conclusion. But at the moment, it's really hard to side with the United States on anything because publicly that just doesn't go down well. Um, so it has to be seen as an independent German decision to do this. That is German national interest and German economic interest. I think also raising the fact that Ericsson and Nokia are the ones that would actually benefit from this is quite significant in this case, because it wouldn't be a situation where Europe is left with no alternatives or with just US alternatives, but actually the most probable alternatives are European industrial champions, um, which is something that could be supported as well. So this is to some degree taking us possibly down a, ro a, a road of kind of, you know, somewhat unbundling the, the international economy. Um, and is it the case here that the security issues and the trade issues are kind of inextricably bound up together? Or could they be somewhat hived off that there could be, a, you know, a kind of a, a deal reached on trade, while some kind of greater protections are put in place on specifically security concerns? Sebastian? So I think that's a great question. I mean, I think, um, you know, if I were um, advising uh, President Trump, I would say, look, um, this issue about 5G networks is really important. And you do need to build a coalition uh, internationally to resist uh, uh, Chinese equipment being installed in networks that could pose a security risk because in 2017, the national intelligence law in China stated that Chinese companies must always assist the Chinese state in matters of national security. So whether or not you find a smoking gun um, in terms of backdoors installed by Huawei, um, you know, the risk is too severe to, to allow Huawei to um, 
gain that strategic position inside your network. But in order to build a global coalition um, around that point of view, you need to de-escalate the purely commercial dispute. Um, and you need to, uh, you know, avoid um, picking fights with China on other things um, where, you know, you're in the wrong. And, you know, doing stuff that undermines the WTO, the World Trade Organization, doing stuff that, you know, in sort of threatens tariffs that are probably, uh, you know, WTO incompatible, that's just making it harder um, for Germany, for example, um, as was just said, to uh, take America's side. So I think I think a separation, the first part of the answer to the question is that a separation of the commercial and the strategic security stuff would be a good idea for the US. It is difficult because obviously um, building uh, next generation internet switching technology is both a commercial thing and a potential security thing. Equally, China has ambitions in artificial intelligence, in robotics. Um, these are dual-use technologies, both military and civilian. So it's hard to separate them. And I think what we're seeing is, for the first time that I can think of in globalization, a situation where, um, you know, the U.S. is sort of having to choose between um, support for globalization, which, you know, the, not, not that Trump shares that, but which the U.S. historically has shared. But support for globalization is bumping up against national security precautions. And I don't think, you know, when China was a less advanced technologically, a less advanced economy, it was possible in 2000 to say, yes, let's negotiate their access to the World Trade Organization. This is a win-win for everyone. China is now a very different country uh, 19 years later, and it's impossible to just take that purely commercial view of it. Bianca, I think from, yeah, I was going to say from the European standpoint, um, I think there would presumably be quite a lot of attraction in the idea that we try and handle this through the multilateral system, maybe reform the, the WTO as, as the EU has introduced various proposals, um, you know, towards, um, and then perhaps be a bit tougher on the security side. But is that, uh, you know, do you think that's a viable path and would China be likely to, to play along? Well, the question also is, will the US be likely to play along? So I think there is not much of a chance at the moment for a thorough reform of the WTO system that would lead to results that are immediate and that will satisfy the demands of both China, the United States and European countries for that matter. So I think that uh, Sebastian has been alluding earlier to the trajectory that the Chinese um, state is on, uh, which has led to a decline in trust. And then the overall trajectory of the system is towards a direction that none of the players that are interested in a globalized economy actually want. So the question is, is there any kind of off-ramp that could be provided? And I'm not sure that it is a WTO off-ramp, whereas it could be part of it. But um, the the overall question remains for the European countries, whether if the US gets more serious about um, cutting China out of out of its market, um, whether they where their interests lie. And I think especially for Germany, this is a hugely tough decision. Because when you look at um, the, I think for, for me, the, the Iran case is a good example where the moment that the US has um, increased its sanctions and um, the question was posed to German companies, whether they're interested in the Iranian market or in the, in the US market, that's a no brainer. Um, they're, of course, all 
went for the US market. But if the same would be done for the US and the Chinese market, there's a number of German companies where it's very unclear where the chips would fall where their interest in Chinese business is much larger than it is in U.S. business. And I think these are the structural questions that we haven't addressed yet and that we are all trying to avoid in the conversation. But as Sebastian said, this is the trajectory where it's going because there's really nothing companies like Huawei can do to avoid um, the the lack of trust that is being uh, that they're being confronted with and if high tech inclusion and if high tech cooperation is not possible anymore what does that leave us and does that leave us with uh, a partially decoupled um econ- global economy at the same time though i suppose you could say in some ways china has been at least trying to present itself as the you know supporter and defender of the multilateral system in a way that must appeal rather to the Europeans um, who see Trump as this kind of reckless figure who's trying to tear down the international system. Um, do you see that as something which is going to get any traction? On, on the rhetoric side, yes, definitely. The Davos speech by Xi Jinping was the, the first indication of that. But also Wang Qishan, when he was there this time, he clearly said that shifting the blame for one's own faults to others will not resolve the problems. We have to result, uh, resort to a multilateral solution. Um, but after um, the initial um, yeah, uh, enthusiasm about what Xi Jinping back in the time said in Davos, uh, it's really something that has lost traction in Europe because they, everyone sees the trajectory that it's on. And there's no indication that China wants to drop the ambitious agenda of, of state-sponsored industrial development. There is no indication that while dropping the Made in China 2025 from the speeches, that the policy itself has vanished, which has significant impact also on German champions uh, and on German industrial champions. So market distorting practices is something that um, will have to be addressed and um, that they can better be addressed in Europe on a European level with improving competition law and all these things um, than they can be at the moment addressed in the WTO framework. So essentially, your your um, picture that you're presenting, Anka, essentially is that China's going to be very, very reluctant to give up these policies. And that is, you know, whatever happens with this trade round, um, setting the scene for a, a kind of larger confrontation in the, you know, the coming period. At least we cannot see anything to the opposite at the moment. I mean, there are attempts by the Chinese side to increase market access. There are, um, there are some signs towards the foreign investment law. So there are, um, elements that can be presented where there's a step towards the international community. But the question is, are these one-offs or is this a big structural shift? And at the moment, there seems to be no trust that this is a big structural shift, which ultimately leads, um, is based on a lack of trust in the Chinese system itself. So there is nothing that can be done at the moment that would really satisfy this lack of trust, except for putting China back on the trajectory of a real market economy, which is nothing that we can see at the moment. It's, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's nothing that we can we can witness um, in Chinese politics at the moment. At the same time, though, China is approaching the, these talks and this moment in what seems to be a somewhat weakened position. You know, its economy is, um, or at least appears to be, faltering. Um, and is that going to, as it were, encourage them to double down on their economic vision or put them in a mood where they realize they have to win some friends internationally? 
It's hard to say at the moment, I think, where this is going, but I think the, the immediate reaction on the Huawei, um, on the Huawei case and the DOJ, of uh, the Department of Justice case that was brought against Huawei was that there was an announcement that domestic markets and domestic rollout of 5G technology in China would be strengthened. So strengthening the domestic market and strengthening Huawei inside China was the first and initial reaction. I think there is not only this decoupling tendencies going on from the US side, but also from the Chinese side insulating, um, the Chinese state against external intervention is also something that we can see um, after the ZTE case, which was the first case where um, the Where there was, um, where the U.S. Um, has brought um, has brought a, a Chinese telecommunications giant to the knees for a moment, there um, it, it became obvious to the Chinese government that they have to do something to reduce the reliance on U.S. technology in these sectors if they want to pursue the agenda of a technologically advanced state. Sebastian, how far do you think that the United States is is ready to push this? Um, I mean, are they ready to you know to fundamentally shift away from the kind of open international trading system that you know that we've known in the last um few decades anyway um and you know will this also lead over into a, a broader security confrontation do you think look i think you know one thing that's striking anecdotally is that if you talk to the kinds of people who might have been most critical of trump's um trade confrontations with china so i'm thinking about you know, senior democratic business leaders um, who are both Democrats and they have a commercial interest in open globalization. They are actually not critical of Trump. They This is an issue where they think, you know, they hate what he does on the border law, they hate what he does on all kinds of things, but actually on China, it's about time we stood up to them. There is remarkably little criticism of his position. Um so I think there's de even among the uh, business community in the US that might be worried about impact on their sales in the short term. Exactly. Yeah. China has turned out to be a less profitable market than US business leaders had hoped, you know, say a decade ago, whether that's because if you invest in China, you might find that your technology is taken by your domestic partner and then that partner goes off and competes with you, or whether it's because you're trying to sell in China and you find you're outcompeted by domestic companies. If you think of the experience of, you know, Uber uh, going into China and being beaten out and having to sell out, um, there's just a sort of series of those experiences and U.S. business has responded uh, by being less uh, excited about the commercial possibilities in China. And therefore, you know, if Trump wants to uh, get tough on China, try to push them on, um, uh, you know, intellectual property rules, or uh, other investment rules, there's support for that, there isn't resistance among US business leaders. So I think there is a deep um, willingness in the US that goes beyond this administration um, to get tough. I mean, you know, human rights plays into this because um, that's always part of the US foreign policy debate and China is not moving in an encouraging direction on human rights. There's a lot of concern, as you know, about um, sort of the general issue of the tech lash uh, and popular dislike of um, cyber snooping. And that is expressed as a backlash against Facebook within the US, but it's also expressed as revulsion against 
Chinese state monitoring uh, in Western China of civilians and ubiquitous use of sensors and so forth, and that image of a kind of uh, centralized electronic totalitarian state uh, doesn't help China's position on all this. I think across different constituencies in the U.S., there is a hardening of feeling towards China. And if you just take a step back for a second, I mean, the premise for the big um, deepening of globalization from about 1990 to 2010 was that the direction of travel for China, um, and to some extent the breakup of the Soviet Union too, but it was mostly a China thing, um, that the direction of travel was in a liberalizing, westernizing direction. China wanted to join the Western system. And now... That simply isn't believed anymore. China seems to want to challenge uh, the Western-created system. It wants to set up the Asian Infrastructure Bank. I personally regard that as fine, but, you know, it did elicit um, harsh reactions in Washington. Um, and, you know, so if, if, you, if you look back at that premise, that as China westernized, you had deeper globalization, as China challenges the West and wants to challenge, you know, wants to assert its global standing, that's going to hurt globalization. And that's what we're seeing. And so we're going to get, we already have, you know, the internet has become the splinter net. So China has its own firewall and its own set of tech leaders in terms of consumer facing internet. Um, and that's going to extend, uh, as was just said, and, you know, earlier into kind of the, um, the chips that support artificial intelligence or that other, you know, advanced applications, which companies like ZTE have purchased from the US, China is going to want to create its own um, chip suppliers so that that reliance on the US tech sector is uh, diminished. As that happens, the interweaving of the Chinese and American tech sectors will diminish. And, you know, you're going to see this sort of splintering and deglobalization. I think it's inevitable if the broad ideological and political and security direction of the two countries is not towards convergence, but towards divergence. And I guess, Yanka, very briefly, but this is uh, a prospect which must leave the Europeans uh, pretty concerned about Europe's place in a, you know, a more confrontational less multilateral world. Yeah, it's a situation where you don't want to choose between you know, your economic prospects and your security situation, because after all, we're also sort of dependent in our security overall on, on US support. Um, I think it's um, it's not surprising that articles come out like, like Stephen Walt's thesis that Europe's future is as China's enemy, which is something that I think should be um, of deep concern to the European audience and should be should be rebuked uh, pretty, pretty uh, clearly. But of course, this is what comes quickly as an argument then to say, well, are you with us or against us? And I think this is the situation that should be avoided to most, um, to, to the, to the benefit of all. But uh, you can see that there in the U.S. there are some people um, like U.S. Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, for example, who tried to find off ramps and who tried to delink the trade talks from the Huawei conversation and to try to delink the overall um, the trade dispute from the overall challenges that are posed um, by the systemic confrontation that you can witness. So I think there are players with which you can work. 
but it becomes increasingly difficult for the Europeans to situate themselves in between. We are, but that I think we shouldn't forget about that, an important market for both the United States and China. We are an important economic partner for both the United States and China. So um, we cannot be overlooked and we're not, a, we're not um, as the Europeans, not someone who can be, can, can be dealt with as a small and uh, negligible entity. Um, we are economically very important in this game, but that also forces us to make tough choices choices and to find a common European stance on these issues, which is increasingly difficult. Well, thank you both very much. We've covered a lot of ground. This is a topic I'm sure we'll be coming back to. Um, traditionally, at the end of our podcasts, we ask the contributors if they have any books that they've been reading recently that they'd like to recommend, um, either on the subject we've been talking about or something else. Um, is Sebastian, is there anything you'd um, put forward? Well, I've been um, reading up about uh, technology in Silicon Valley because it's the subject of my next book on West Coast Venture Capital. So I recommend The Troublemakers, which is uh, a wonderful history of um, the origins of Silicon Valley in the 70s by a Stanford professor called Leslie Berlin. And then next on my list, I haven't read it yet, um, is The Code uh, by Margaret O'Mara, which is another history of Silicon Valley. And um, focuses on the way that the um, Silicon Valley's so-called libertarian sort of free market uh, prosperity has in fact been supported by connections with politics in Washington to a much greater extent than the digerati of the valley would like to confess. And, and Yanka? Uh, I would like to recommend a German book, if I if I may, which is called uh, Neuerfindung der Diktatur by Kai Strittmatter, The Reinvention of Dictatorship. It's a perfect um, assembly of the challenges that are ahead in terms of what we can witness as technologically advanced authoritarianism. Um, and I think this is uh, one of the few accounts where um, there's actually a German language contribution that is quite rare, which you cannot find on the in the English speaking market. So it's an incentive to read something in German for the German speakers and an incentive for other publishers to go out there and, pu and publish this book in English because it's really worth reading. Great. Uh, both of those are clearly very relevant to what we've been talking about. The book I've been reading a bit less um, directly relevant, but I'm preparing for a trip to Algeria. And so I've been reading this book, um, Algiers Third World Capital by Elaine Mokhtefi. And this is a kind of uh, taking us right back into the era of the Cold War when Algeria was the kind of, you know, the kind of uh, front line and the champion of the third world. And this is a memoir by an American woman who found herself there um, and very much, you know, in um, the heart of the kind of radical Algeria of the late 60s. So it's a, a period piece, but a fascinating one. Um, so that's it for this week. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and please um, tune in again next week. Um, but for the moment, um, from Sebastian Malaby, from Yanka Ertel, and from me, Anthony Dworkin, it's goodbye for this week. The researcher for ECFR's podcasts is Jonathan Hackenbreutsch, and the editor is Katerina Botel-Asinaro. <laughs>